Now, the passage is this passage in Acts chapter 4, verse 13 on, or 32 onwards, and on into chapter 5. There's a story told about Cecil B. DeMille. You know, Cecil B. DeMille was the Hollywood um, producer who produced some of the great films in the middle of the last century, in the middle of the 20th century. And, you know, films like King of Kings and The Ten Commandments and a lot of other blockbuster films. He was the, really the first Hollywood producer produ to produce these great blockbuster films with hundreds, indeed thousands of people. This was before the days of CG, you know, computer graphics. So everything had to be done with actual people. And uh, he was the pioneer in all that work. And he had one particular film, we're told, when he was going to spend 50% of the budget on the film on one scene. It was a major scene, and uh, there were thousands of people involved. It was a battle scene. And uh, because he knew it was going to cost so much and take, so, uh, uh, and take such an amount of effort, he decided that he would, instead of using the normal two cameras, two camera crews, he would use four camera crews to make sure he captured the scene from every angle. Well, they got ready and eventually the scene took place and he gave the commands, you know, lights, camera, action, stuff, and the scene took place and thousands of people were marching on, battle scenes took place and buildings collapsed and all that sort of stuff. And for the first time, everything went perfectly. It was magnificent the way it all worked. And then he got in touch with the various camera crews and he said, uh, how'd you get on? Did you get that okay? And the camera crew said, uh, ever so sorry, um, CB as he was known, but the camera jammed. So I didn't manage to record any of that. He was a bit shocked. So he went to the next crowd and he said, uh, did you get that? The second camera crew. And they said, no, I'm afraid somebody had been using the camera and there was a bit of film jammed in the shutter and consequently we only got the last few seconds of it which probably you won't be able to use anyway. Now he was panicking. He went to the third one and asked if that, um, uh, if that had uh, he managed to collect it and he said, well, one of the horses coming by in that great battle scene flicked up some mud onto the lens and, it uh, and we had to wipe the lens. So again, we don't know whether we've got any... Um, uh, uh, any footage that you can use and now he was really worried and he sent message to the last crew and said did you get that and the message came back ready when you are <laughs> <laughs> well uh, I'm told it's a true story though I wasn't there so I wouldn't like to say exactly but you know there are many of us in our Christian life you know, we hear these great things, there's things going on all around us and so on, and we're, our attitude is ready when you are, ready when you are. I, I'll join in when the time comes, I'm ready when you are. We almost say that to the Lord. You know, there's that old saying that uh, there are three types of people in the world. There are those who make things happen. Then there are those who watch things happening. And there are those who don't know anything has happened. And so often in the Christian church we can be amongst the latter character, ca uh, category where we hardly know what's going on. But these people in this church at this time, it was an extraordinary time. Right at the beginning of the church, the establishing of the church, and this is an exciting, gripping account of those early days. And the context of it, which we didn't read, was just a few verses before. We're not going to spend time on it. 
But it, the context of what took place was actually a prayer meeting. You probably thought about that last time when uh, you met together, though I wasn't here, able to be here last Sunday. And a prayer meeting uh, took place, and it says, uh, they asked God to lift up his hand to enable great things to happen, miraculous signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. And as a result of that, we are told in verse uh, 31, as they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke the word of God boldly. Those three things, the place was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's the word logos, by the way. They spoke the logos, the logic of Jesus, boldly, is what it tells us there. Consequently, the church grew. Now, that's the context of what we're thinking about today. But there's not only a context, there's a community of, uh, amongst which this particular scene took place. In verse 32, the start of our passage says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. New International Version says, I've just commented, all believers. The authorized version says, the multitude of believers. The English Standard Version says, the full number of believers. The CSB says, the entire group. In other words, everybody. This was not just something that happened to a few little apostles in the corner. This was the whole group involved. The whole company of believers the whole number of the people of God there. Not a few keen people, not those who are specially chosen, not those who we thought of, we might think of as especially spiritual. I remember when I was at college years and years ago, and uh, you know, you'd think in terms of the apostles, they were very important, and there were the disciples, a bit lesser and so on, you come down eventually to missionaries, and you come down to elders and so on, and then you get other people who say, well, he's a real man of God as if man of God was a sort of a pinnacle of the type of people. Well, these were not these special people. These was the whole company involved here. And uh, they were all the believers, the full number of believers. And it says of them that they were one in heart and mind. One in heart, cardia, one in mind, psyche. The whole company was one in heart, and mind, the heart, the entire moral, mental capacity, the activity, the relationships amongst them, emotionally as well. The whole heart of these people was involved. And the whole soul, the seat of personality, that which gives life. They were united together as they prayed and as they stepped out into action. So what Luke is telling us here is that all the believers were not united in thought, in action, and in character. That's what he's saying for us. Now there's something that we should just note in passing that comes from this. This was, as far as they're concerned, reality. This was not aspiration. It's not that they met together and they said, if only we were united, if only we were one in heart and soul in, in all of this. It's actually something they did. They were actually committed. The blessing of God in the early church was because not just of their desires or even their aims, but, was their, but because of their actions based on their desires and aims. It's one thing for us as Christians, isn't it, just to be saying as a church, for example, we ought to be doing this. We ought to be doing that. 
But it's quite another thing to say, okay, we'll do it. And we'll commit ourselves to it. And it's so easy for us as individuals to say, yes, why doesn't the church do this? Why don't we do that? Why don't and, and yet we have the opportunity to be involved and to do it ourselves. It's often the most simple and practical and straightforward of terms in which these things are described. They did it. They acted. For example, take the dominant passage, uh, theme of this particular passage, the dominant passage he was giving. Care for the needy. They did it. They didn't say, we ought to set up a fund. They didn't say, we ought to um, put in action a program. They did it. They gave their money, and they gave to everyone who was in need. If you take the parallel passage, which comes in Acts chapter 2, where it says the early church met to get how they met together, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, and so on and so on and so on, six or seven different things. They devoted themselves to it. They all joined together. They were continually strong together, is what it literally says. Not one of them was excluded or ex- excused. And it says in this particular passage, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one, notice the word no one, claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had. So they were all thoroughly involved, all committed. Everybody was involved. Now, why is it appropriate to go on and on about this for the first few minutes this morning? Simply because it's so easy for us to make a mental ascent as to what we should be doing and what the church should be doing and so on. By the church, I don't just mean this local church, but the church. Perhaps we think that there's, well, we do it from a a detached emotional point of view. They ought to be doing this. We ought to be doing that. But it's another thing to do it when it costs. To take on board some of these things and put them into action as they did. But they were all involved in this. No one was excluded, it says. And so it says in verse 33, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And you may know that the word testify there is the word martyr, martyr. The word means, of course, there was a cost involved. They were, we might say, martyrs to the resurrection. Of course, Preaching the resurrection eventually cost them their lives. So they were literally martyrs to the resurrection. But it cost to do these things. It was not an easy thing, just because they were an exciting part of the early church. It cost them. I uh, have a friend who's an Indian, Indian evangelist. And uh, he was telling, uh, in a meeting that I was in, about where he comes from, from the very north of India, uh, Cherapunji, which is right up by the um, border with Nepal and um, right, up, right up in the very north part of, of India. And uh, it's a beautiful area. The highest rainfall in the world is in Cherapunji. But anyway, that's nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But anyway, it, there was in the years ago a crown prince of Cherapunji. He became a Christian when he was a teenager and went on strongly with the Lord Jesus. But the time came when he got older and the king was failing in health and it meant that Boar Singh, that that was his name, Boar Singh would eventually take over and eventually the king died 
and Bo Singh. The people were so pleased because they'd learned to love Bo Singh and they'd learned to appreciate the fact that he was a committed Christian and how that worked out and experience in his dealings with people and his kindness and love towards them. And they were so pleased that he was going to become king. And so waiting for the coronation ceremony, if that's the right word, the, when they would be, he would be recognized as king. And uh, he was approached by the priests who led this work and they said, we know that you're a Christian. Uh, but this, this ceremony of crowning the new king, of course, is a pagan ceremony. And therefore we just want to ask you, it's a six-day ceremony, would you just please lay aside your Christianity for six days so that we can crown you king then you can come back to leading as a Christian. And he said, no, I can't stop being a Christian for six days. So they went away again, these priests, and they thought, well, we better do something here. Everybody loves him. They can see that he's doing a great thing. So they came back and said, look, we've had discussions and we've found out that we can manage to pare the ceremony part down to, to, to one day. And uh, will it be all right for you to lay aside your Christianity and their principles for one day? And he said, no, I can't. I can't lay it aside for one day. And now they were under pressure because the people were wanting him crowned. And so they came back to him eventually after further discussion and says, look, this ceremony must take place and we've managed to look at it and the key part of the ceremony we've reduced to one hour. Will you give up your Christian principles just for that one hour so that we can have that pagan ceremony? And he replied like this, what do you think of my Jesus? Do you think he's like a shirt that I can put on and take off whenever I want? I will not give up my Jesus for one single hour. He lost his crown. He lost his wealth. But as a result of it, that part of India became the most Christian part of, of India. There's a cost involved sometimes in doing the ordinary things, even just standing. These apostles, they were martyrs to the resurrection. They knew they must preach it. They wanted to preach it. They were filled with joy preaching it. But they were martyrs to it. It cost them to do that. Today we're constantly challenged by the martyrs that we see on the news, those who suffer and die for the sake of the gospel. And uh, we say to ourselves, would we do the same in similar circumstances? Could we do the same? Could we put up with the suffering that may come our way? Could we endure? Could I bring myself to pay the price? And maybe even in these circumstances, can I pay the price of giving to those who are in need? Could I pay the price of witnessing to the resurrection? Or let's put it more easily, can I pay the price of going to the prayer meeting? Can I go to the price of paying, uh, of going to the breaking of bed service when we meet together? Or would I rather stay and do other things? Unwilling to pay the price. These people were willing to pay the price. Now there are several things that come out of that. Um, do you ever watch those programs, we see it from time to time, things like uh, Antiques Roadshow and what all the, all the others are, Flog It and... Uh, whatever those things are, bargain hunt, etc., etc. And you know, sometimes you get somebody come on with a prized silver goblet or whatever it may be. What is the first thing the expert does? Finds the hallmark. Gets out his magnifying glass and tries to find the hallmark of it. One may be beautiful, but if it hasn't got the hallmark, it's considered worthless almost. The other one may look 
very inferior, but because it's got the hallmark, it's valuable. Now, what are the hallmarks of these people? There are several mentioned here. Let's just touch on them briefly. The first hallmark of being one who is willing to pay the price, as these disciples did, is great power. Verse 33, great power. It says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were powerful in their testimony. They were dynamic. That's the actual word used. They spoke the word of God with boldness. Boldly. That's the secret of their power, their boldness. Actually, when Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he speaks about us witnessing, and he says, seeing we have such a hope, we are very bold. The word he uses is the word parousia. And it means freedom of speech, um, unreservedness in speech, willing to declare when it seems the right time and when it doesn't seem the right time. That's what it actually means. And it means a lack of fear in preaching. Great freedom, great boldness, no holding back, no hiding the true, meaning, true meaning. Sometimes we like to obscure the meaning of the resurrection and the, the, the gospel because we know that there are things that will cause offense to people. But not with these people. They were bold about it. They were forthright about it. They were open about it. Peter and the apostles spoke with great boldness and compassion. And you remember Paul later on writing to the Ephesian church, he asks the people there, would you pray for me that I may boldly proclaim the gospel? It's the same word. With unreserved authority. So there's this freedom in proclamation, a fearlessness, an openness. Said of George Whitfield on one occasion that um, you know he was, he was the great preacher in the time of... Uh, the great awakening in this country and in fact in America as well. But um, a couple from America wanted to hear George Whitfield preached and they paid quite a lot of money to come on a ship, of course it was sailing ships in those days, come from the United States because they wanted to hear Whitfield preach. They landed at Southampton on the Saturday and disembarked at Southampton on the Saturday. And they made inquiries as to whether George Whitfield would be preaching the next day. And they found out that he was going to be preaching in Tottenham Court Road in London. And uh, they made their way. They were exhausted. They'd been through several major storms on that journey. And they were totally exhausted. In fact, they were feeling very, very ill. But they decided that that's why they'd come. And therefore, they would go and hear George Whitfield preach. And they managed to find out where he was going to be and went to Tottenham Court Road in London at the time for the meeting that was to take place, and George Whitfield came in. And they said that when they saw him, he was pale and drawn, he looked ill. And when he stood up to speak, he was like them, it seemed exhausted and ill. There was nothing magnetic about him at all. Nothing bold and authoritative about him at all. And for the first 15 minutes, they said, he struggled to sort of find his feet in his preaching and to get his theme clearly laid out in front of people as he preached. But then they said after about 15 minutes, something happened which was so extraordinary, they said not only were we physically healed listening to the preaching of George Whitfield, but we were transformed by it. 
and we would have gladly crossed ten oceans like the one we'd crossed to hear him again. The presence of God was so real and so authoritative. That's what's the sort of thing that's being spoken of here. They preach boldly with freedom, with authority and with power. And as a result of it, God preached. And you remember Paul says in Colossians that Jesus himself disarmed powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. It's this boldness, this openness. Don't you think we need that a bit more? In our sharing with our neighbors and friends and as a church, we need that openness and boldness. They preached with great boldness. And by the way, it's the word mega, mega power they had because of it. That's the first hallmark, mega power. Second hallmark, great grace, verse 34. There was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land sold them and brought them from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it says a little bit earlier, verse 30, end of verse 33, there was much grace upon them all. The characteristic of grace, mega grace, in the community of those people was, was a, mark, a hallmark of them. What is grace on a person? What does it mean? What do you expect when you think about somebody having a lot of grace, if that's the the way to put it? Generosity, loving kindness, goodwill, open-heartedness. James says in James 4, verse 6, that it's the opposite of the world. Friendship with the world is the opposite of grace. But he says that the Spirit gives grace. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's this sweetness, this joy, this delight, this welcome that flows from those people. And it's the second hallmark of these disciples here. Great power, verse 33, great grace. Mega power, mega grace. Then there's great purity, third hallmark. That's verses 36 and 7 where it speaks about Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles named Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now you say, well, where do you get great purity from that? Well, uh, I may be, and I'm willing to admit this, but I may be sort of reading a little bit between the lines, but I'm not sure that I am. Let me explain. Joseph, who we call Barnabas, He's known mostly later as Barnabas, was a Cypriot Jew. That's what these verses tell us. And he had relations relations in Jerusalem. We know that because he was a cousin of Mark, John Mark, and John Mark's mother lived in Jerusalem and used her house for the apostles on a number of occasions. Colossians 4 verse 10 and Acts 12 tells us that Mark's mother owned a house there. And in any case, these verses tell us that Barnabas, the person we're thinking about, Barnabas had a piece of land to sell. But, here's the important thing, we're told he was a Levite, and Levites should not own property. You can read about that in Leviticus uh, 36, I think it is, no, 25, and in Numbers 18, They should not own property under the Old Testament law. But here he was, a Levite, 
and he owned property, whether he inherited it or wherever he got it from. So I'm asking myself this. Did Barnabas, in this atmosphere of great power and great grace, when the presence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Lord was so real in the church, did Barnabas say, I want to bring my life into line with what God's word has to say? And therefore, I'll sell this piece of land. I shouldn't perhaps have it, or I inherited it, and I, I'm, not, I'm a Levite and should not therefore own it. But anyway, he sold it, and it says he, he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He did not want any watered-down Christianity. Great power, great grace, great purity, as I said, if it's not reading too much into it. What a contrast, by the way, between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira a bit later in the story. Then there's a fourth hallmark, great fear. Chapter 5, verse 5 says, talking about Ananias and Sapphira, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. That's Ananias. And then in verse 11, a bit later, when his wife comes in and she too died for lying to the Holy Spirit, it says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And no wonder. What would we do if that started happening at Abbey? So on a Sunday morning, if any of us came and says, here's my offering, this is what I have, and we gave that and didn't give the whole story, you dropped down dead. No one, I mean, there'd be great fear in the church, wouldn't there? We would be a little bit different as a church here. But that's what happened there. There was great fear twice mentioned. Of course, fear in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, we'd be not very good if we were never frightened. Imagine you were abseiling, for example. And learning to abseil down a cliff or whatever it is, or down a big building. Whatever, whatever it would be. And, and you had an instructor, and the instructor said, this is how you tie the ropes. This is how you put them through the, the cleats and the, uh, all the other. You would take great notice of how they put the ropes on, wouldn't you? Because you would be frightened of falling. And in those circumstances, great fear could really save your life. It's important sometimes to have great fear. And you can go on with other things. Fear of crossing the road and fear of all sorts of things. It can be good. Fear of getting things wrong. Fear of burning your hand in a fire when you're a child. Fear of handling poison or whatever it might be. But here we're told that the fear that overwhelmed them in the, in, in the early church was because of their lies. And no wonder they were fearful. If we were more generous, if I was more generous, more committed, more open, if this sort of thing happened in the church, would I be fearful? I think I would. The answer is yes. And if I say, yes, I would be more fearful, then I ought to be saying to myself, then shouldn't I change now before I do anything else? Let me give you two verses by contrast. 1 Kings 18 verse 1. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. In Romans 3.18, there was no fear of God before their eyes. One of the great words of the Bible for us is, is um, one of the titles given to God. You know, we talk about God 
Yahweh and El and Elohim and other titles in the Old Testament and so on. One lot I hardly have ever heard anybody speak about is despotes. Despot. It's, only, it's used less frequently, half a dozen or more times, but it's used of God. It's used in the New Testament too, in 2 Peter 21 and Jude 4. God is a despot in that sense, in the right way. He's absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely in charge. He owns all things. He has unlimited power. And therefore we should hold him in awe. There should be that sense of majesty coming into God's presence. Despotes. Fear has much more than just respecting him. Respecting God. Um, you, you may be saying to me, well, does that mean that I should be frightened of God? Surely the answer to that is no, but we can apply it like this. We should be not frightened of God, but we should be frightened of anything that would become between us and God. Fearful of anything. Fearful of saying anything and doing anything that comes between us and God. The fear should be to do with the, the things that come between God and what he wants for our lives. Now there's much more that can be uh, squeezed out of that, but time doesn't matter. So great power, great grace, great purity, great fear, and then Finally, great contentment. Great contentment. And again, that is without stretching it too much, we can read between the lines. These early believers were not after personal gain. They were not after, uh, after personal advancement. They were not trying to make their way in the world and get a better this, that, or the other. And have you ever noticed how often the most generous people are those who can least afford it? That's because contentment is based on content, obviously. And uh, it says in the scripture that the Apostle Paul had learned to be content in every situation. A rare commodity these days, contentment. We all want more. Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in Humility, count others better than yourselves. Be content. Pursue the things of God and be content. But contentment is so hard to come by. When I was preparing this, I, I, I thought about, um, looked it up, Shakespeare, Henry VI. In Henry VI, two gamekeepers were out gamekeeping, whatever they do. And um, the king, in disguise, was out. And they came upos uh, upon the king. And in discussing things, they found out that this was the king. And one gamekeeper says to Henry VI, If thou be the king, where be thy crown? And Henry VI replied, My crown is in my heart, not on my head not decked with diamonds or Indian stones, nor to be seen. My crown is called content, a crown that seldom kings enjoy. Seldom kings enjoy, seldom anybody enjoys these days. We ought to be those who can become more content 
because it's based, contentment is based on content. And let me just finish with uh, one other little story. You will know John Lang. Sir John Lang, he was the, the biggest builder in Europe, the greatest building company in Europe. He, um, well, I won't go into all the background, when he took over the company as a, as a, a young lad from his father, it was a small little local business, uh, but he developed it, multiplied it 16,000 times as big by the time he'd finished. And Sir John developed all sorts of different techniques. He was the first people to start using concrete in building, making buildings because bricks were so expensive after the end of World War I. So he developed concrete and built the M1 and all other Sir John Lang, the, the builders and so on. But he was a fine Christian man, as you probably know. And he gave away so much of his money and put a lot of it into a trust for Christian work which has been a great blessing to so many. When Sir John Lang died, I had the privilege of going to his house a number of times to meet him for different reasons, and such a humble man in a smallish house. But when Sir John Lang died, he left in his bank account £371. That was it. He was hugely wealthy, or could have been. But he gave it away to Christian work and to other things and left £371 because he'd found his contentment not in the things he owned, not in his possessions, but in the Lord himself. The hallmarks of these people, we haven't looked at Ananias and Sapphira other than in outline form. The hallmarks were great power, great grace, great fear, great contentment. But it strikes me as interesting in verse 13 of chapter 15, it's chapter 5, it says this, No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Not surprised if when you walked into church and told a lie, you dropped down dead. No one dared join them. But then the next verse says, Nevertheless, more and more were men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Which seems a contrast, doesn't it? No one dared join them, but more and more joined them. But that's what it says here in the scripture. And as a result of it, God was at work. And uh, the early church in purity and holiness began to grow and spread around the whole world at that time. Great passage of scripture. May God enable us to learn from it today in Jesus' name.